we read in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, and we'll be focusing on the verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the statement, just grin and bear it, has been a popular one for many years. Sometimes if a child gets hurt and is whining and complaining, their mom will say, just grin and bear it. Or maybe it's a wedding reception and you've been hauled to the front to be a part of the entertainment. Just grin and bear it. It's fine if it's the little things that you've been told to grin and bear, but it becomes a bit of an issue with the bigger things, doesn't it? Our limits for what we will grin and bear only go so far. Then we get the Apostle Paul and his command to rejoice in the Lord always. Is this realistic? Before we answer that question, let's take a moment to examine Paul's life. The Apostle Paul was quite familiar with suffering. He was writing this letter of joy to the Philippians from prison. Five years prior to this letter, he wrote uh, in the second letter to the Corinthians the following. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been on the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? When Paul himself was in Philippi, he was jailed. He was chained for the gospel and roughed up by the crowds. Being a Christian in Philippi was not an easy thing. How is it possible that such a man was able to write so extensively about being joyful. Now, let's consider his audience. The Philippians themselves faced difficulties as well. Philippi was a city of veterans. In the war in 42 BC, where Anthony and Octavius fought Brutus and Cassius in the power vacuum following the assassination of Julius Caesar, many of their veterans settled here. Because of this, the city received and maintained a colony status which was held by very few cities outside of Italy. This granted them special rights and privileges. 
They were fiercely proud citizens of the Roman Empire and hostile to anything that might challenge that pride. This resulted in a strong support for the imperial cult and anger to those who would oppose it, including Christians. Moreover, the Christians in Philippi also faced fierce opposition from the Jews in nearby Thessalonica. And yet, despite all of this, Paul calls them to rejoice. Seeing his reaction to suffering, as well as his command, we are brought to the realization that rejoicing in the Lord involves so much more than simply grinning and bearing it. We will examine this call in the following theme and points. As they eagerly await their Savior, believers in Philippi are encouraged to find their joy in the Lord. And we will see, first of all, rejoice in the Lord. Second, show gentleness to all. And third, replace anxiety with thankful prayer. With the call for the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Is Paul telling me to be happy all the time or else I'm not being a good Christian? The ref made a bad call at hockey. Am I supposed to be happy about that? I'm struggling financially because the global economy has put strain on my business. Am I supposed to be happy about that? One of my close friends has just left the church. Am I supposed to be happy about that? We have to recognize that rejoicing isn't the same as being happy all the time. One person defines it this way. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Paul himself calls for the Philippians to rejoice in his chains in chapter 1. He also says in chapter 2, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Yes, joy involves a state of being with a generally positive outlook. We'll get to that later. But we can see here that it doesn't mean that we must be happy all the time. It doesn't say, always be cheerful or else you're sinning. We are not only allowed to grieve, but sometimes we are called to grieve. Think of Jesus when his close friend Lazarus died. He wept. Think of him when he prophesied the downfall of Jerusalem. He wept. In the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 15, the Holy Spirit commands us, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We are allowed to be moved by sorrow into tears. This is something we need to keep in mind when approaching those who are mourning for one reason or another, brothers and sisters. They might be mourning because someone dear to them has left the church. Maybe they're mourning because someone has died. Or perhaps they're weeping because they themselves have been sinned against. When this happens, it's not our place to pull out this text and say, be happy. No, we are called to share in their sorrow. 
to be a support to them and to grieve with them first and foremost. It is only once we have done that that we can start to move on to help them rediscover their joy. This might take hours or days or months, but it is the love that we are required to show them. What Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What this passage also shows us, however, is that we must rejoice with those who rejoice. Our joy ought not to be restricted to ourselves, our circumstances, and our achievements. Rather, we should be willing to find joy outside of ourselves. How do we go about this? Well, the concept of finding joy outside of ourselves is not something that's too unusual of a concept in our society today. People are always trying to find joy outside of themselves. One prime example of this can be found in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, verse 18, we read, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There were members in the church in Philippi whose focus, Paul says, are on things of this earth. They cheer themselves up with more money, more security, more toys, more popularity, and yet it's not enough. Solomon highlights this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He sought after things, money, woman, prestige. In the end, if this is your ultimate goal, you will come to the same conclusion as him. Everything is vanity. People pursue things but don't find ultimate joy because they are settling for too little. C.S. Lewis described it in this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is off, um, imagine what is meant by the author of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. And yet we have this deep-seated sense of dissatisfaction. That is why many men who have reached the peak of their game in various fields seriously struggle with depression. They thought that when they achieved it all, they would find greater satisfaction and greater joy. And yet, that is not the case. Because there is a greater joy available. As Christians, we sometimes lose sight of this greater joy as well. Sometimes our grief will become so big that it swallows up our whole world. This is when it becomes sin. We have let it become bigger than God in our lives. That is sin. So how do we deal with grief then? How do we find the strength to rejoice? The key is in the words which immediately follow. Rejoice in the Lord. We need to look to the Lord even in the dark times. 
We need to see that what we have in him surpasses this world and the worst that this world can throw at us. We need to place our hope in him. Take Philippians 3. There we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is the attitude with which we are called to approach life. It's easy to look at life with the perspective of this world, but the Holy Spirit calls us to look at life with an eternal perspective. When we allow grief to overwhelm our sense of who God is and that he is a good God, that's sin. We make grief then into a terrible and demanding God, a God who will take and take until we have nothing left to offer. It's a dark and evil God who will stop at nothing. We'll have our up days, but they'll only be temporary. God calls us to look beyond our grief. Here in Philippians, he says to us as heavenly citizens, you know the grief you've, you know the grief you've suffered? I have something in store that is so much better than you can imagine. It will wipe away every tear from your eye and fill you with a joy beyond measure. Where do we find this joy beyond all measure? Where is this well of pure joy that I can drink from? You must look beyond yourselves. As the prophet Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Here we can see that it's something externally given to us. Once we have drunk from this unending supply of joy, this unfathomable spring, then the Holy Spirit says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is the will of God in Christ Jesus that you rejoice. Christ has bought his children with his precious blood. He lifts us above the sorrows of this broken world. When we consider what he's done for us, what he's obtained for us, it's stunning. Every tear will be wiped from your eyes and your joy will be made complete. With the realization of this, you can have an undercurrent of joy running throughout your lives. A joy which has its source in our Lord Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 8, 1 verse 8 to 9. You share in a joy inexpressible because of Christ. You are able to say, as we read in Philippians, I share in his power. I share in his resurrection. I share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And one day, I will also share in his resurrection and glory. My joy is that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And no one can take that away. Yes, and he did much more than simply buy us and rescue us. He has sent his Holy Spirit to us, and it is his Holy Spirit that works this joy in our hearts. As one part of the fruit of the Spirit, joy grows within us as we grow in faith and in strength in the Lord. 
What a precious gift we have in this. We can have the settled assurance that we have been bought and washed in the blood of Christ. We can rest in the quiet confidence that God is in control of all the details of our lives and that for the sake of Christ, He will work it to our good. We can look joyfully ahead to a world without anything to take away from that joy. Christ has obtained this for us. And if we look to Him in faith, He will grant it to us. And as joy grows in our lives, so it will reflect to those around us as well. This is our second point. Once a Christian feels in their heart the beginning of eternal joy, they cannot but reflect it to those around. Do you live like this? Do you live in the assurance that everything is under God's control and that ultimately it'll all turn out for your good? That you're free to live radical lives for Him? How does your Christian life impact those around you? Can they see the joy within you? Have they heard from your mouth why you live differently? Do you act differently? Different action is something which Paul brings up particularly here. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The word for reasonableness here refers to a sense of moderation in your dealings with those around you. It's also translated as gentleness. The word has the idea of not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. You have the opportunity to nitpick, to squeeze someone for every penny's worth but you don't take it. Rather, you have grace in your dealings with those around you. One theologian described it using the acronym JOY. The response of a Christian to salvation is to live a life of joy. As such, you put Jesus first, then others, then yourself. When you live a life in this manner, you have a significant impact on your dealings with others. You're willing to put aside your impatience towards others, your anger and your bitterness. You live a life not dominated by gain, but by worshiping Jesus first and then serving your neighbor in love. What encourages us in this? What does Paul use to encourage us in letting our gentleness be made known to all men? He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. There's a sense of anticipation here. Of ourselves, we might not like the idea of showing gentleness as such to those around us. We have a bit of a feeling of rebellion. If you want to make a buck, if you want to get ahead in life, you have to be hard. It's always been that way. That's why you have old proverbs like, you must howl among, while among wolves, or... Uh, those who act like sheep will quickly be devoured by wolves. You can't risk letting someone take advantage of you. Christ, on the other hand, points to the imminence of his return. What's worth more? Taking advantage of someone or the opportunity to connect with them and show them the grace of God? Making a buck off of them or drawing them nearer to the healing power of a mighty Savior? And this goes not just for money, but for every interaction. 
goes for every interaction that we have with people. Every interaction must be full of grace, seasoned with salt, and overflowing with gentleness. So, what's the most practical way that we can start with this? Where do I begin? Paul gives us a starting point. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about or meditate on these things. This is not a legalistic framework. It's a way of life. It's the way of life of the joyful Christian leading the way to a life filled with gentleness to those around. In reading the words, the Lord is near, we must reflect on them. What has more power? The wickedness of men or Christ coming in glory? Are we going to be disheartened when men take advantage of us? Or are we going to cast ourselves fully into the progression of Christ's kingdom? This is not to say that we should be unwise in the way that we handle our money or seek confrontations or make a martyr of ourselves at every turn. We are called to act with wisdom. We are called to be good stewards of what we've been given. But we are also called to use what we have been given. Whatever area it is, what we have been given is a means to an end. Always in the back of our mind should be the nagging feeling. The Lord is near. Is this person in front of me saved? How can I use this situation to show the love of Christ to them? It also causes us to look at life with urgency. Christ has said, Behold, I'm coming soon. We do not have much opportunity to show his love. Let us make the most of the time that we have. But more than that, the word for near can be used not just for time, but also for space. Paul is making the Philippians aware that the Lord is aware of their conduct. This should make them keep extra watch over themselves, but it is also a comfort. He is there to come to their aid in their time of need. What about when we fall short? When we fall short in our need to show gentleness to all, we can look to our Savior. In Christ, we find the epitome of gentleness, a Savior who has perfectly imaged the grace of God in his life. He is the perfectly gentle one. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Christ, we find true rest because he set the relationship right between us and God. And now God looks after us as our almighty God, but also our faithful Father. This hope we read in Hebrews, we have as the anchor of our souls. He is our anchor in the storm, and in him we can find forgiveness and strive to live a life demonstrating that. This leads us to our final point, replace anxiety with peace. Finding our full satisfaction in Christ is what allows us to live a life of joy. But it also allows us to reflect on the greatest enemy of joy. The greatest enemy of joy is anxiety. Anxiety can be debilitating. It can break you down and cause you no end of grief. What's the best way to fight against this? Jesus lays this out in Matthew 6. 
There he writes, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Worrying about what will happen tomorrow or the day after will only add to grief in your life. Jesus calls us to remember the source of our joy. Because he has set our relationship right with God, we can rest in the assurance that our Heavenly Father will look out for us whatever the occasion, whatever the future might bring. I was reminded of this a while ago with a story that someone told me. She was studying law and the time for the bar exam came around. She was feeling stressed while waiting, for, while waiting to be examined. But then one of her classmates, who wasn't a Christian, spoke to her. He may not have meant it seriously, but it really struck her. He said, what are you worried about? Your friend can walk on water. Your friend can walk on water. A powerful statement, isn't it? This person had seen her walk of life, the way she had expressed her faith in class, and he was telling her that if she really believed what she said, she should take it to heart. Your friend can walk on water. So why worry? You have a brother who is the most powerful king of the universe. His power is so great that he can command the laws of physics to change, and they will do so. Even death has no hold over him. So why worry? Why be anxious? Why let the stress and strain of this world overwhelm you? Cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. That is what Paul commands the Philippians to do as well. He has suffered, and yet he can rejoice. He knows they are suffering, and yet he encourages them to rejoice. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the absolutes here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Be anxious about nothing. We can't do this alone. But we can do this through Christ our Savior, in the strength supplied us by the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can access the Holy Spirit is by asking in the name of Jesus Christ. Compare that access to the wind. If you are on the water, you'll notice its movement. You can see its effects. But if you want to have the power to move, you need to raise your sail. Likewise, only by the power of the Holy Spirit will we be able to do all these absolutes. So we must come to God, lifting our sails in prayer and supplication. We must do so with thanksgiving, recognizing the power of what God has done for us. That we are loved by the one true living God, that God is our perfect Father, that we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and empowering us, that our sins are forgiven. 
And then, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This peace of God is deeper than we can fathom. It's the anchor for our souls. It's the solid point, like that of a ship at sea. The ship might be pushed this way and that by the currents and winds, but once it drops its anchor in the harbor, it is safe. It is guarded. That is how Christians can give responses to troubles that are so incredible to the world. They see the situation that you're in. They see the grief that it can cause. And they say, how are you not falling to pieces right now? True, we're sorrowful. Yes, we do struggle and grieve, and yet, yet we know we are kept safely in the palm of the Lord our God. And we can give the response of Habakkuk. Though the fig trees may not blossom, no fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Isn't this beautiful? Even in the face of suffering, we can see a joy and a confidence in the Lord. Reflecting on the sovereign faithfulness of God, we can cast aside our anxieties and live a life of trust. That's not to say that life as such will get better or that our situation will improve. But it gives us the glorious freedom to say, as Habakkuk continues, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. We cannot face it in our own strength. But that's okay. You do not need to face it in your own strength. The Lord God is your strength. He may not make the way flat before you, but he will make your feet like deer's feet. And with him at your side, you will scale every treacherous and rocky slope. Amen.